So this evening, I would like to look at uh, two aspects of the practice, which we could call the sudden aspect and the gradual aspect. Because in the Zen tradition, this is a, a debate to this day about is a practice just about sudden insight or is it about gradual cultivation? <coughs> and personally, I feel part of our practice is very gradual. We, over time, slowly, step by step, we work over negative tendencies. And so over time, slowly, they dissipate, they dis disappear, they dissolve. And at the same time, over time, I feel with the meditation, we develop positive qualities. But there is another aspect of the practice which is more called sudden. And it's just this kind of sudden breaking, breaking through the veil of attachment to our potential or to our Buddha nature, as somebody would say. And in the Zen tradition, this debate is still, to this day, it's still the rage. And because there is, is the practice and the insight sudden, sudden. Is sudden insight followed by, in a way, sudden practice, that the two basically are happening at one time. And this is what is called the subitist approach. And at the same time, personally, I feel that if you read all these Zen stories, I mean, they have certain breakthroughs, but it seems to take them a bit of time to get there. <laughs> <laughs> like if you look at the story of Wine and Huijia, you know, Wei Zhang was speechless and then he practiced for eight years and then he had a breakthrough. So, I mean, it might be a shortcut, but not kind of a very fast shortcut. <laughs> so, in a way, to be careful of this idea of suddenness, I feel. And then you have the other uh, schema, which is a sudden followed by gradual. And the people who follow this are the dreaded gradualists. And they really, really look down upon. <laughs> and even to this day in Korea, because you see, the main Zen idea is sudden, sudden. This is the main point. And uh, in Korea, most of the temples, I mean, China is the same, Japan is the same, mainly. It's all about sudden, sudden. And I remember one day I had this Chinese master in our house. And I thought, oh, you know, I can talk to him about, you know, things, because I know a little Chinese and things. And so I said to him, what about, what about Sungmi and what about sudden and gradual? And he looked at me horrified. <coughs> no, 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 Zen is sudden, sudden, no gradual. And our temple in Korea was looked down upon because we were sudden gradual. So we are the dreaded gradualist. So we were not the real things. When all the other temples were into sudden, sudden, so they were the real things. Uh, that, I mean, for, to me, I always find these kind of fascinating, these debates which go on for centuries and who are still alive today. But <coughs> where does this come from, this sudden, sudden idea, this sudden gradual? Well, it comes in a way from a legend. I mean, it's a semi-legend, semi-historical. And this is basically about uh, how the sixth patriarch became the sixth patriarch. So it starts with the fifth patriarch who is getting old, he's in his temple, and he says, you know, I need to pass on the mantle of the Dharma to the person who really merits it and who has really practiced, and so people must bring me poem of awakening, and then uh, the best poem, the person who writes the best poem will get the mentor. So everybody in the monastery thinks, ooh, you know, I can't do this, but the abbot, the abbot is really the one who can write the poem. So everybody waits for the abbot, and the abbot thinks everybody expects me to do it, I must do something. So finally he thinks, he thinks, he thinks, and then he as his poem written on the wall. And that, so the poem of Shinshu, the abbot. 
The body, the body, is a body, B-O-D-H-I, which means awakening. The body is an awakening tree. The mind is like a clear mirror. At all times, we must strive to polish it and must not let dust collect. I read it again. The body, this physical body, is an awakening tree. The mind is like a clear mirror. And at all times, we must strive to polish it and must not let any dust collect. And so in a way, Shen Shu in this poem is saying within this body, within this physical body, there is a potential, there is a seed of awakening. So anyone who has a physical body has a possibility of awakening. He also says the mind is like a clear mirror. Again, it is spacious, it is reflective. And the practice is in a way to cultivate the three training of ethics, meditation, and wisdom so that the defilements are not going to stick on the clear mirror of the mind. So in a way, the practice is a little like kind of, you know, a uh, screen wiper. You know, when it rains, if you want to see in front of you, you have to kind of put them on. And then, you know, the water is not going to kind of uh, cloud the view. And it's the same. To be the same, the practice is so that nothing is going to stick to this spacious, to this clear mind. And personally, I would say this is a practical approach. This is a gradual approach, a practical approach, which really consider the body, the mind, the heart, and work with them as they are, work with them organically, observing the mind, observing the heart, observing the body, and in a way working with this organically, with ourselves, I would say in a very day-to-day -day way, so that in a way it's very much about working that there is less grasping arising. It's very much about that. How, does the, how can the dust come? How can I kind of make it so it does not stick? And uh, the fifth patriarch saw this poem, said, very good, very good, very good. This is a nice one. Everybody should recite it. And then another person in the monastery heard the poem and thought, I can do much better than that. <laughs> so then another poem was written on the wall. And that's what it says. Awakening originally as no tree, the mirror also as no stand. Buddha nature is always clean and pure. Where can dust alight? So I repeat it. Awakening originally as no tree. The mirror also as no stand. Buddha nature is always clean and pure. Where can dust alight? And so here he's saying awakening is not containable, it's not fixable, it's not specific, it is not set anywhere. So again, he kind of this idea of pervasiveness of spaciousness with kind of no limitation anywhere, nothing set anywhere. And to me, this is very much in a way an experience of non-grasping. If there is no grasping, then again, there is that experience of spaciousness, of nothing is fixed anywhere. Also that the mirror is not contained within borders. Again, there is no limitation. There is no place to fix anything. And again, this idea of expansiveness, that kind of the, this awakening is reaching out everywhere. It's wide open. Again, it's not a kind of a specific awakening, but it's kind of <coughs> everywhere. And in that way, one could say that the Buddha nature is referring to, because it's, the Buddha nature is always clean and pure. So in a way, it cannot be soiled, it can be, not be covered, nothing can, in a way, do anything to it. And we could see it a little as the sun behind the sky, in the sky. Because when the sun is shining, it's very bright. 
But if there is a heavy rain, we don't see the sun. But on the other side of the cloud, the sun is shining very brightly. It is not wetted by the, the rain. We are wetted by the rain, but the sun is not. So in a way, he's saying the Buddha nature is like that. It's always shining, very pure, very brightly. And <coughs> there is no stickiness, because there is nothing you can stick upon. There is not, nothing to stick to. So in a way, if it's all spaciousness, the dust can stick anywhere. They can be fixed anywhere. And I would say this is a mystical vision of the practice. And it has its place. But I think what is important is not to make them in opposition. The first poem shows, in a way, the gradual aspect, the practical aspect. And then the other poem shows the more mystical aspect, the more kind of, uh, kind of, uh, ecstatic aspect, one could say. But personally, I don't think that the practical and the mystical are opposed. But I would say that they are complementary. That actually, that's why I would not be keen on this sudden-sudden. But that, in a way, the sudden gradual make more sense. Because, in a way, our practice, it's always as a crossroad of these two dimensions. The dimension of the gradual, of the practical, and the dimension of the sudden of the mystical. And so in a way to see that these two dimensions are needed in our practice, to me it's a little like the sudden aspect, the mystical aspect is a depth aspect. And then the gradual, the practical aspect is more like the width, the, the kind of the width aspect. And so in a way you have the depth and the width and then our practice is always at the crossroad of these two dimensions of depth and width. And if we just look at one aspect, if we just fixed on one aspect, like the development aspect, for example, we try over time and we progress. And, and I think this is an important aspect, that we sit here and we sit over time, we do many retreats, and it makes a difference. There is a development aspect to the practice, that we progress, we can be more focused, we can be more present, we can be more calm, it is less difficult to sit. There is a progress. And at the same time, it's not just developmental and not just progressive, but there is this other aspect of suddenness, which is in a way not engineered, where there is this sudden openness, and what I would call a de-grasping. And that actually the two things can happen in a way at any time. The gradual aspect, which is we work and we try again and again. And at the same time, in the middle of the gradual aspect, we can have this sudden moment where we don't make it so. But it happens that suddenly we feel deaf, different, we feel very open, or we feel very clear, or very quiet. And I think this happens because in that moment, we don't grasp at anything. Something has dissolved, and then, in a way, the non-grasping can be experienced. But if we only look at the development, the gradual aspect, then the danger there is that then you have this series of precise steps. So it's step by step by step, and then it can get very deterministic. Step one, okay, step two, step three, and then you get very, in a way, gradualistic in that way. But then the problem with that is then you get very fixed expectation. You know, step one, you get this, step two, you get that, step three, you get that. And it becomes a little narrow, and the problem is that if you don't feed that schema, then you have problem. You know, you sit and sit, and you feel, you know, step one, never saw step one. You know, <laughs> where is this step one? Never heard of it. And I think what we have to be very careful is that, of course, there are sometimes step-by-step things, and there is a gradual development. But it is not exact, and for everybody, exactly the same. Because whatever technique it is of meditation, 
whatever path it is, nobody is going to fit it 100%. I think this is what we have to be very careful when we hear great teachers saying, I did this, and it were. Everybody must do it. Well, everybody can try to do it, but it might not necessarily work for everybody. For some people, it might not work. So I think one has to be careful of this idea that all the technique must work to the same degree with everybody. I don't think it's so. I think some technique will work better with some people. I would say there is about 60%. You know, you have, most people can do most things, and some people it really doesn't work. So then one has to see what is it that works for me? What is it that fits? What is it that really makes a difference? Because if you sit and sit and sit and sit in meditation and nothing whatsoever change, then I think there is a problem, <laughs> either with the technique or either with the way you do it. I mean, I had a, I met a man who long ago, before Buddhism was really known in the West, he became interested in meditation. And he was an architect. And so he had made in his big office a little place to meditate. And he would say to is a other worker, I am going to meditate. And they would think, oh no, not again, not again. <laughs> because he would go to meditate, and then he would come back so angry. <laughs> you know, and he was really, I mean, they did not think he was improving at all after his meditation session. Until somebody pointed it out to him. And he saw that he was using the meditation as a repressive mechanism, which was not working whatsoever, and then he cannot change his method, and then it was much better. But in a way to see, I think this is kind of important to see, is it helpful? Is it really making a difference? I think it has to at some level. We don't just sit because <coughs> we have nothing better to do, you know? And if we knew, we would take a golf instead. <laughs> I mean, we do it because there is this gradual aspect. But at the same time, we have to see how does it work for myself, for my own condition. Then there is another aspect, and again, we have to be careful of just thinking it's only sudden. It's just sudden awakening, it's sudden practice. You're not interested in the gradual, in progress. There is no progress, there is no goal, there is nothing. And uh, just awakening, this is all, just breakthrough. But the problem with that <coughs> is that it's not always functional, this sudden, sudden. It's not very functional. You see, you work really hard for a week. You, sleep, you meditate all day and all night, and you have this amazing breakthrough. And then what? And then what? Because generally the amazing breakthrough depends upon the condition in which it happened, which is generally push, 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 and then the only way out is samadhi and breakthrough. And then what next? So in a way to be careful, I think, there, to see that this sudden, the breakthrough, I think, is very nurturing. When we have a breakthrough, when we see something differently, we experience ourselves differently, I think it's very useful, it's very nurturing. But it might not be necessarily functional. If you experience yourself as this huge, expensive, unlimited being, I mean, this is fine when you sit on your cushion in meditation, but how is it when you take the bath? How is it, you know, when you wash the dishes, etc., etc.? I think, in a way, to see the place, I think the, the breakthrough has its place generally in the meditative context, in a very specific environment. And then also it can be very one-dimensional. This is it. Everything is limitless. And this is it. That's, that's a breakthrough. This is... This is it. This is what the past becomes reduced to. Everything is limitless. You are limitless. I am limitless. The shopping market is limitless. And, uh, and again, I don't think this is very practical. I mean, I think as an experience, it's interesting. But how do you apply that in daily life? How do you bring this to your relationship? 
how do you bring this to your office? And another thing that seems to go with sudden sudden is ethics. That I find very interesting. You see, a lot of the time, people have this, you know, they really try very hard and they have this breakthrough or so-called awakening. And then, it's very strange, they feel they can do anything they want. Anything, the first thing they go and do is have sex and drink alcohol. I don't know why. This is is very baffling to me. But it's like, you know, you have a breakthrough, you are beyond anything. And, but what does this mean? I mean, it seems to me the path of the Buddha is about wisdom and compassion. The path of the Buddha is to go beyond greed, hatred, and delusion. So now I think to, to see what does it mean, this sudden aspect of the practice? What's his place? How can it really, in a way, make sense in my life? Outside of the kind of some beautiful metaphor, what does it really mean as an experience, as something which can mean something in my life? And to me, that's why I find quite useful the schema that was proposed by Tsumi, a Chinese master of the ninth century, which was then taken by uh, Master Bojo, who is a Korean master in uh, the 12th century and the founder of our temple. And that's why I have been to sudden gradual. <laughs> and I, because it makes sense to me, the fact that you have a sudden insight, sudden breakthrough, followed by gradual practice. Then again, another sudden insight, again, followed by gradual practice. Again, another sudden insight, followed by gradual practice. So that you don't have a mega one where this is it, you can, don't need to see it ever again, but it's more there is a succession of breakthrough, which each time you have to make organic. Each time you have to, to bring into the context of living every day. And this is why my uh, teacher was very inspired by my teacher, Master Kuzan, because he was reputed to have had three awakenings. And, you know, you, generally you would think, well, one should be enough, you know. <laughs> Why didn't he need three? But no, he, he had three awakenings. And what I found very moving before his death, a few months before his death, we were walking together, and we stopped, and he said to me, you know, you must always practice. You must always meditate. Always question. Because you never know how you're going to be when you die. And when you die, you want to meditate. You really want to cultivate meditation at that moment. And he said, even I don't know how am I going to be when I die. So I too am meditating. And you should too. And to me, this was very humbling. In a way, to see that he was a great master and he was reputed to have had three awakenings, but he never stopped meditating. (laughs) He never had this feeling, this is it. I have arrived. I don't have anything to do anymore. But to the last day of his life, he meditated. When we traveled in plane, train, he would sit in meditation. He would meditate everywhere. Because for him, it was not, the breakthrough was not the end of the path. But actually, the breakthrough was, in a way, the beginning of, again, more cultivation Then more breakthrough, more insight, so that it was a never-ending path. There was always something anew to see more clearly, again, something to cultivate. And so, in a way, I feel it's very important, that sudden insight, that sudden opening, that sudden seeing. I think, in a way, even if it's a minor one, very brief, each of us has to experience this. This sudden experience of ourselves very differently, of not being fixed, not being so solid, not being so tight, and just feeling ourselves differently, more of an ease, whatever shape it might take. Because I think when we experience this, 
then we can really give rise to great faith in ourselves, in the practice, because then we really know what is talked about for ourselves. We experience for ourselves that the grasping is possible. It is not an insurmountable thing. It's something that can happen to any of us. We can, and grasping can happen, and then we can experience ourselves in a much more spacious and creative way. And at the same time, we have to practice gradually because of the habits, because of the patterns. Because in a way, over many years, we've built this mental habit, this emotional habit, this physical habit. And it's kind of like grooves in our being, very deep grooves in our being, where we kind of, we, before we even think, we just go that way. And then through that, we create suffering for ourselves and others. And so in a way, often the breakthrough is not enough to dissolve the habit. But it can help us to look at the habit very differently. And then it can give us the faith that we can work with this habit. We can dissolve this habit. We can diminish the power of that habit. So I think that's why the two are so important. The sudden seeing then will give us more confidence working with the habits. Then the habit diminishing will allow for more breakthrough to happen. And also, that gradual aspect is to, in a way, apply to put our insight into experience. So it becomes organic. It's not just an experience, an amazing experience we have on the cushion, but it really means something, makes a difference to the way we behave, to the way we are in our life. For example, sometime as we sit in meditation, we might have this experience, suddenly, very warm, exciting experience that everybody has a Buddha nature. So when you sit in meditation on retreat and you have that experience, you have no doubt. In that moment, you know yourself and everybody has this Buddha nature. Everybody has that potential to awaken. You have no doubt whatsoever as you sit on your cushion. But how is it when you go home and you have to deal with your neighbor with a little cantankerous? Do you see your neighbor as having the Buddha nature? Do you see the policeman as having the Buddha nature? Because this is, seeing it as you sit in meditation, this is not so difficult in a way. But seeing it in daily life, again and again and again, that is, in a way, that kind of application, that making that experience organic. Or... We might have, when we, when we watch the breath, we might have that experience of just suddenly we really see very clearly that we breathe the same air with everybody in the room. We breathe the same air with everything that is alive outside. And at that level, one could experience how intimate we can be with life, all of life, any life. And I think this is something we can relatively easily experience when we are on retreat, when we do meditation. But can we experience this when we are at home, when we feel lonely, when we have not seen anybody in the day, and we feel a little sorry for ourselves? Can we, can we go, can that experience be more than a memory? Can it be something which actually makes a difference to that moment? So that instead of feeling lonely and far from everybody, we actually feel connected to everything in that moment through the breath. Or sometimes, we kind of, uh, I feel often on retreat, we can have the experience of our heart opening. We sit in meditation, and suddenly, you feel like your heart is really open, and the only way you can express it is 
You have no trouble with nobody whatsoever. There is not one person you think, uh-uh. Everybody is included in your heart, in your loving kindness, in your love. You think, yes, everybody you know, is worthy of my love. And there is this amazing expansiveness. But how is it when you go to your, again, you are in your daily life. How is it when somebody is a little difficult or things are not working the way you want or at the office? Can you open your heart again in that way? What would it mean? In a way, what would that experience mean on the cushion in terms of translating it into the daily life? How can this, in a way, help you to develop, to practice, to cultivate creative, wise compassion? Not just sitting here, but in the actual life, in the actual creative response you might have to the suffering of some person. (coughs) Or another thing that sometimes we experience is we suddenly see form as it is. Once I had this experience, I was doing a retreat, and uh, at the same time I was doing um, my job, my daily job. I was living in England, and this was to be a house cleaner. And uh, although we are doing the retreat in the community, I still had to clean downstairs for somebody. And one of my uh, dreaded moments when I was a house cleaner was to clean the toilet and finding something dreadful in it. (laughs) So there was always this dreaded moment of, you know, will I find something in it or not? And so I am doing this retreat, and I go down to do my job, and then I open the toilet bowl, and there is a big one in it. (laughs) And I look at it. And I see it's just a form, nothing else, nothing. And I still had to flush it because that was my job. (laughs) But what was interesting for me in that moment was that there was no exaggeration, there was no proliferation, there was no grasping. There was just seeing the form as it was in that moment. But then, you see, we can have experience like this often on retreat when suddenly we see form as it is. No exaggeration, no proliferation, no grasping. Just as it is, just as it appears to be, happens to be. But then it goes. The seeing goes, in a way. And then what you have is a memory. But how can you bring that experience, that memory, into your daily life? When you see a dead rat, or when you see rubbish, or when you see whatever it is. How can, how this certain experience, how can we bring them, how can they bridge, they come, and have an effect in our daily life? To me, this is very much the question about this sudden aspect of the practice. And I think in the same way, to see that when we are on retreat here, we're very much training. We're cultivating both aspects, gradual and sudden. But at the same time, we are in very specific circumstances. We are in silence, there is a schedule, there is an environment. And then we experience meditation in a certain way. And then we're going to leave the retreat in three days' time. And then we go back to our daily life, and often people say, ah, but my meditation at home, it is not the same as when I sit on retreat here. (coughs) Why is that? (coughs) Is there something missing? in my practice, that I cannot have exactly the same meditation here as in daily life. And I would say, you cannot have the same experience because it's very different condition. I think here you are cultivating the depth 
of the practice within a relatively narrow environment of silence, of schedule, of group, of teachers. And in the daily life, what you are going to go with is the width of the practice. The fact that you go into a world which is very multidimensional, very multi-perspectival. And so, of course, in such an environment, the meditation experience will be very different. So I think, again, to see, there is, again, that two elements. The more sudden aspect here, the more depth aspect on a retreat, and the more width, gradual aspect in daily life. And so to see that they both correspond to different dimensions of our meditation practice in terms of retreat and daily life. And so I would say, when you sit in daily life, generally, you have the same experience as here for about two minutes. Your first two minutes of meditation are like here. Because you find the posture, yeah. Ah, nice. <laughs> Two minutes. And then, all what happened yesterday, all what's going to happen later on, this is very interesting. In a way, it's to see, again, there is the same thing going on here. I think that when we sit here, it's the training. When we sit at home, it's very different. I think when we sit at home, it's for three reasons. One is to stop ourselves. Because I think that's what we do here. We stop ourselves. And in that stopping, actually, that's when the suddenness can happen. This is interesting. The breakthrough can happen when we stop, when we allow our being to stop. And so that's why I think it's important to sit at home, to stop. Then also it's important to sit at home in order to cultivate the value of meditation, of attention, of wisdom, of compassion. And it's also important to stop at home to cultivate concentration and inquiry, just in the same way you do it here. But you will not have the same effect as you sit, as you would here, because your mind will be a little more distracted than you are here, especially after four days of steady meditation. But still, that sitting at home, that intention will have an effect. And you can feel it generally during the day. So in a way to see that I think our practice is always meshing the two aspects, the sudden and the gradual, and also the depth and the width. And that actually we need these two dimensions, that it be on retreat and also that it be in daily life. And I'd like to finish with just two poems by a great Korean Zen nun. And uh, these poems are part of uh, the, my la last book, which was published last year on women in Korean Zen, which has my experience and her experience of practicing in Korea. So this is just two poems I thought would be relatively relevant to the subject. So the first one. Buddha cannot see Buddha sees Buddha. I cannot see I sees I. I saw the nature awaken to the way. What rubbish. Then next one. <coughs> Clear water flows on white rocks. The autumn moon shines bright. So clear is the original face. Who dare say it is or is not? So that's what I wanted to say. Today, are there any questions or comments? Yeah? Well, I think it's a misconception uh, because, you see, I think if you take meditation out of uh, the three training context, 
then actually, yeah, you can meditate and it, you can go in many different ways. But my teacher was a Zen teacher, a bona fide Zen teacher, was really adamant. Practice is about the three training of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And he again and again would say, you need the three together to really develop as a full human being, your fullness of potential. I think the problem is when you take the meditation out of ethics, out of wisdom, then you, of course, you can get great state of concentration. You know, in, in order to be concentrated, you don't necessarily need to be ethical to get great samadhi. You don't. But then you have this idea, because you feel there is this exhilaration with breakthrough. You feel beyond everything. This is a problem. You feel you are beyond everything. You are in the non-dual. There is no good, there is no bad. But this, I think, is again this mystical experience, which I think it, it, it's an aspect of the practice, but it's not all there is to the Buddhist path. And so I think this is a danger. When you take meditation out of it, and then you take samadhi, especially out of you, you look more on concentration in a certain way, then you have not so much what I would call discriminative wisdom. And then, you yes, you can get great state of concentration and feel uh, kind of, you know, quite amazing. But then, what do you do with that? You know? It's not anchored. I feel then it's really not anchored. And also because if you look in terms of the 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 foundation of the time of the Buddha. The Buddha talks about the uh, awakening in four stages. And to me, what's very interesting is looking at these stages that the Buddha suggests, is that in the first one, you have belief in self which goes, but at the last one, you still have conceit to go. And in the middle, what also has to go is greed and hatred and delusion. So I think there is, in a way, a lot of things to work with, which means to me that, in a way, awakening is not just one experience of degrasping. And I think it's very easy. You feel so different, you think, wow, this is amazing. This is it. I got it. I am enlightened. And then everybody should follow me. But I mean, <laughs> you know, I am not so sure about that. That's why I think the main thing is to have the three trainings all together and then this does not happen. Yes? Um, I'm not clear what you mean by proliferation as opposed to exaggeration. <coughs> okay. Uh, exaggeration is, let's say, you know, you something is... Uh, okay. Let's say there is a pretty flower. There is a pretty flower. Ooh, pretty flower. <laughs> it's beautiful. <gasps> it is so beautiful. That's exaggeration. <laughs> beautiful flower. Mm, it would be nice to have this flower in my garden. Where could I get this flower? Maybe in that flower shop, yes. Maybe and if I put it in the corner of my garden, that's proliferation. Isn't that abstraction? That's what I mean. They're both abstraction. Yeah, I mean, they both... They both create abstraction, but I would say proliferation creates nearly more abstraction. Because as soon as you proliferate, generally you're not here. You're not with the, you don't see the flower anymore. You are in the flower in your garden in three months' time or whatever. When, I mean, with exaggeration, at least the thing is still there. Though it's kind of a little... Uh, yeah, it's bigger than it is. <laughs> So that's, that's, that's the, the, the two different... I mean, but often we do the two together. Yes, yes, yes. But I wanted to see that we can do slightly different things, which then really then leads to slightly different problems. Uh, yeah? Um, you've mentioned wisdom. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about discriminating wisdom. <coughs> uh, wisdom, I mean... There are many different uh, things about wisdom. You have, you know, the wisdom of listening, the wisdom of reading. 
But also you have basically the wisdom we refer to generally in Zen is a experiential wisdom. It's discriminative wisdom which comes from your own experience. And at that level, I would say in general, that type of what we call Buddhist wisdom comes from this experience, deep experience that of impermanence, of unreliability, of conditionality. So it's when you kind of experience yourself that. And then from that experiential wisdom, because if you really know, I think that all Buddhist meditation generally leads you to this experiential wisdom of the three characteristics of impermanence, unreliability, and conditionality. And when we really know that, then actually, out of that, generally arise compassion. That's to me was it very interesting with experiential wisdom of the three characteristics, is that that really makes you more in life, more fitting, in a way, with what is uh, the experience of life. Because generally we have a tendency to make things permanent. We have generally, we want to make things kind of, you know, long-lasting, satisfactory, long-lasting. We can often separate them. Don't see how they're so interdependent, so conditioned. So to me that's that, with those characteristics of experience. And out of that is this experiential wisdom and compassion, actually. Because we respond from a place which no change, instead of saying it is always like this. And then I think it makes start to make a difference to the way <coughs> we are. But that's briefly, because I mean this is a big subject wisdom. And over there, that's yeah. Um, when when you first start to look at Zen, I suppose one of the questions you have to decide is whether or not to you know, go for the Soto school or Renzai school in terms of koans mm-hmm. or not using koans. Could you speak a wee bit about the difference between using the koan and not using the koan? <coughs> yeah, I mean it's basically what back to my spectrum of um, specific focus, wide open awareness. And you find that in different, in different schools. But with the just sitting, basically, I would say the concentration is just to be there. And the inquiry is actually not to grasp, not to reject anything in the experience in the moment. And personally, I would say this is a hardest <coughs> practice to do. This is, I think, is very hard to do. To just sit there totally aware and totally non-grasping, so to say. And I think this is a good practice, but it's a hard work. And then you have the koan practice, but you see, the koan practice is done in many different ways. I think this is also important to see. The way it's done in the <laughs> Japanese tradition is very different to the way it's now done in the Chinese tradition to the way it's done in the Korean tradition. Because in the Japanese tradition, you have this series of koans, which was instituted by Master Aquin in the 17th century, which I think this is a very specific training. And personally, I feel it's a little too complex. But again, if one likes this kind of thing, then one can go that way. Otherwise, you have the... In China, it's interesting that then the Pure Land got together with the Zen school. And so now they say, you know, who is reciting the Buddha's name? So again, it went a certain way. And then in Korea, they tried to make it more syncretic. And so in a way to, to have that direct question, what is this? What is this? So although in a way you have the same Linchi school and the same Kuan, you actually use the technique in quite a different way. And I think it's the same with uh, just sitting, with Soto Zen. Because I would say the Chinese Soto Zen is slightly different from Japanese Soto Zen. Because in um, the Chinese school, there is more this idea of silent illumination. That as you sit in meditation, you are silently illumined. When with Dogen in the Soto Zen school in Japan, it became more just sitting. When actually, as Stephen was saying, Shikantaza is uniting Samatha and Vipassana together. 
So again, you know, and then each teacher, each, each, each teacher has this little kind of variant on it. You know, because some, some sort of people will make you count the breath. That's all you do, you count the breath. Is that just city? You know, and so uh, it's like any technique. Actually, you might have a technique, you might have a tradition, and even within that, generally it's quite creative how kind of different people will uh, give different instructions. So I think it's, again, who you meet, what you hear, and what makes sense to you. And in a way, what makes sense to you and what is your natural also inclination. Do you need to have a more specific focus? If you are a little sleepy, I would say, you know, generally the question would be good. If you are very, very agitated, and maybe the just sitting might be better. Again, you see, I, personally, I don't think, you know, this is the best way. I think there's just many different ways. And one has to try a little and then decide, you know, to just do one. But even within one, generally, there, there is a little way, there is a little kind of spectrum. <coughs> okay. Thank you. Now there is some walking before the last city. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.